0: Thank you for downloading this downtown Hope sermon podcast we 're a faith based community in the city of Annapolis, Maryland, orienting our lives around Jesus and exists to see the people of our city, region, and world thrive with the hope found in His gospel. Now, please enjoy the sermon Great podcast to be with you all this morning. My name is Joey. I have the gift of serving downtown Hope as pastor of Catalyzation. Uh, alongside of a great team, and this morning we're continuing our series through the book of Revelation. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 12, so I would encourage you to tables uh, in print or on your phone or whatever, or maybe you have Revelation 12 memorized, um, and uh, we're going to dive in together. Sound good? Yes. Okay. <clears throat> I'd like to read the passage, and then we'll, we'll dive in. This is a hard-hitting one. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I mean, all of revelation has been, hasn't it? But this one is this one is particularly um, intense with what we learn here. Revelation chapter 12 verse one, and a great sign appeared in heaven. Sorry, let me back up. Actually, this section really does begin a little bit. Flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. And now into 12.1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she devour it, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven." And the dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them night and day before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and a times and time half and half half of a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth, after the woman to sweep her away with a flood, but the earth came to, help of, to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river, and the dragon that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Father, there is is deep mystery and truth in this passage. And we're asking that Your Spirit would meet us here. And Your Spirit would illuminate this Word for our hearts. Lord, You know each person that You've brought into this room. You know those of us who are wandering and running from You. You know those of us who have been abiding in You and suffered much recently. Lord, you know us who are just hearing about uh, your message, your gospel for the very first time. And we don't believe it's an accident that you brought us here this morning. So would you speak? Would you speak through the power and the truth of your word by your Holy Spirit? And Lord, the things that I share that are from you, that they would be remembered and the things that are not would be long forgotten. And that Lord, as we sit under this word, Lord, we would be transformed. This is one of our discipleship practices, Lord. We want to be formed by your word together in community, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On October 31st, 2004, my college roommate, AJ, was driving with his family along an interstate uh, road in Florida. When a driver on the other side of the interstate of the medium had fell, fallen asleep at the wheel, crossed over, and collided head-on with my roommate. He was in the car with his wife and his uh, young son. He and his wife, uh, his wife and his son lived. But my, my dear friend AJ, my college roommate, uh, that night went to meet his Savior, Jesus into eternity, just like that. The other driver fell asleep at the wheel, unconscious of the very real things that were happening around him, completely oblivious to how his life impacted others, how his life would be impacted. If I told you this morning that behind these curtains there was nothing there was absolutely nothing. There was no life, just eternal emptiness. You would say I was crazy, <laughs> and why would you say I was crazy? Because you can see the light coming through. You can hear the rustling outside of the curtain here. You can't see the side of the screen, <laughs> <of the street laughs> you can that. If I were to tell most people in our cultural moment that beyond this life, beyond the veil of this life, beyond what we can sensorially perceive. There's a mystical and mysterious and enchanted world inhabited by demons and angels where an eternal conflict is waging between good and evil, between Satan and God. Many would say, I'm the one who's crazy. And many of us in this room who even have identified Christ as Lord... I would make the argument this morning that we've fallen asleep at the wheel, become partakers in what what we might actually call an atheistic worldview, where we've eradicated the possibility of a spiritual realm from our imaginations. We've fallen asleep at the wheel. Many of us have. And we are utterly unaware of what is happening around us. How our actions are being influenced and impacting others, how others' actions and lives are impacting us, and what's behind all of that. And this is this is all comes out of, of this modern Western Enlightenment vision of the world that's largely based on an attempt to control. The world through scientific methods, a good thing, we love science, God created science, but when it becomes the way in which you interpret the entire world, it becomes incredibly limited. Soren Kierkegaard said it this way, the scientific method becomes especially dangerous when it encroaches on the realm of the spirit. Now, As we come into chapter 12 of Revelation, just the quick background is the first three chapters of Revelation. If you've been following us with the daily, uh, John gets this vision, and the first three chapters are about an exhortation to the churches of Asia Minor. Chapters four and five, we looked at it a few weeks ago. we, We were brought into a vision of the throne room of God. In chapter six through 11, which we've been working through over the last couple of weeks, God's righteous justice or his accountability is coming upon all sin and injustice. Uh, it's being brought upon the earth. And there's this question that emerges out of these chapters 6 through 11, isn't there? Where, uh, where do these injustices and suffering we experience come from? Where does it all come from? Some of us have been suffering or causing others to suffer, and we actually don't have any understanding of why. Why? because we've reduced the world to just mere materiality. And when we experience suffering, but, but I should say, we at that moment go to God, and we say, God, why? God, why do we suffer? And, and the, the biblical answer to that question is complex and mysterious, and actually, I would argue, takes a lifetime to contemplate, a theodicy of how a good God can allow for evil. That's not actually what this message is about. That's a message for another day. There are a few foundational realities that emerge out of Scripture, and there might not be any more important passage in the entire Bible than this chapter that gives us profound insight into why suffering happens in the world. It comes right here... (laughs) to John in a vision, in the middle of Revelation, through this vision of a cosmic battle. And, and, and my prayer for us this morning, as we just say for the next few minutes to we'll walk through this, is that this would be a wake-up call for you and me. And this would challenge us, if you're in here and you're a follower of Christ, and you identify Christ as Lord, to wake up and see the realities of the world beyond what you can just see with your eyes or taste with your tongues or perceive with your senses and that's what this passage does it sort of pulls up the curtains that's actually what all of revelation does isn't it but particularly this passage say why are there horrors in the world why is there suffering why do we suffer and there's really three sections, three acts, we might say, if we think of this as, this passage as a drama. There's three acts in this passage. The first is there's a cosmic war going on. That's, that's why we suffer. The second is we actually discover a cosmic victory in this passage. That's also part of why we experience suffering. And then thirdly, and, and it relates specifically to our reality, is there are cosmic attacks that are ongoing. So cosmic war a cosmic victory, and then cosmic attacks. So we're just going to look under these three axes and walk through it together. I'm going to mention a lot of verses, so have your notes out, have your pens out, take note of these. I'm not going to read it all in full, but we're going to walk through it, and uh, we can certainly have conversation after if you have any questions that come up. The passage begins with two signs, as we see in verse 1 and then verse 3. Okay, uh, The first sign is that of a woman. The second sign is that of a dragon. Now, a sign, what? A sign points to something. And so, these signs in Revelation, particularly in this chapter, are pointing us. The dragon signifies something. The woman signifies something. So, let's look at what that is. First, the woman. What the woman signifies, and this is the way prophecy works in the Bible. The woman represents the Virgin because as you as we read through this passage, we're going to see this is a woman giving birth to a son who will be uh, who will rule with an iron, uh, you know, an iron scepter. The woman also represents Israel. Okay, we we see this here um, in verse one and two. She has a crown of twelve stars. Um, around her. Okay, this is a reference back to Genesis chapter 37, Joseph's dream. It's similar to this. There's the sun, the moon, the 11 stars. This represents Israel. She also represents the church, us, the body of Christ. Um, we find this in verse 17. She has ring, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And we find here in verse 1 and 2 that this woman is pregnant, She's pregnant and ready to give birth, but she's also in groaning. She's in pain of childbirth. She's clothed with the sun, the light of God, the light of Christ. And then in verse 3, we find there's another sign. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on its head seven diadems. Red, the color of blood, This dragon is violent, a murderer. It's enormous, says the scripture. dragon is large. This dragon has has, uh, capacity. Seven heads. This dragon, this figure, this sign is cunning. Ten horns. Horns represent, as we've been looking through the book of Revelation, a sign of strength. So there is a certain power, albeit borrowed, that this dragon has. His tail sweeps the stars out of the sky. This could be literal stars, fallen angels. Some commentators would say actual angels. This dragon is exercising power. And the question is, we we know the woman represents Mary and Israel and the church. Who does this dragon represent? The dragon represents, uh, you know, the vision is very clear in verse, uh, if we uh, go to verse 9 here. The great dragon was thrown down. We're going to learn about that in a minute. The ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So the dragon is a very real named adversary. In fact, the vision that John gets... The Lord wants us to see it so clearly he calls him the devil and Satan. That's the Greek version and the Hebrew version. He wants to make sure that anybody reading this is going to get a picture with absolute clarity. There can be no question about it. There is a real adversary out there. a portion of it here. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. This is God speaking of an angel that he created who would fall and become Lucifer, Satan, the devil. You were in Eden, the garden of God. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. So he was a created being. You were an anointed guardian cherub. He was an angel. I placed you and you were on the the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, verse 16 of Ezekiel chapter, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. So I brought fire from out from your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you." All who know you among the peoples are appalled you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. It's amazing how Scripture speaks to Scripture that speaks to Scripture. Past, present, future. You have to understand in, a, in the cosmic realm, God exists outside of time. It sort of is beyond what we linearly understand. But some of the things that are revealed in Revelation, there's a past to them. There's a present to them. There's a future to them. And here we find what's unfolding in Revelation 12 is actually hinted at and pointed to all the way back in this passage in Ezekiel. Now, I want to just take a minute here because we're we're looking under this first act of a cosmic war and what's unfolding between the woman and the dragon, Satan and the church, okay? There's three things that come out of this passage that I think are really important for us to get our head around as we're sort of lifting up the veil and saying, why is there suffering in the world? Why, why are there horror? There is a real adversary who has real intent to cause real harm in your life, in my life, in our lives, in the, wor- in the life of the world. There's three things that we find within this first act, okay? I'm just going to walk through it here, uh, high level, and, and dive into it more, and maybe you can identify some of these tactics that have been uh, attempted, that the enemy has attempted to unfold in your life. The first we find is in verse 10, where in the vision we find that this adversary, the devil, is an accuser. Let me. Hear. And pretend the accusers, who accuses them day and night before our God. Now, many of us go through our lives, and we wake up in the morning, we look in the mirror, we go through our work days, we go through our relationships, and there are these distorted, perverted lies that we have believed about ourselves. And sometimes those things happen through another person who sinned, sinned against us in the past, Some of those are just lies that the enemy has brought into mind. But the enemy's intent is to continue to accuse you, to tell you that you're weak, to tell you that you're dumb, to tell you that you're just a sinner, to tell you uh, you can't accomplish anything in life, to tell you that you're a failure. And these lies, they're subtle. And, you know, as Jacob was talking earlier about, you know, who, who knows these things about your life? These are the things we have to talk about, but the enemy is real. He is continually trying to accuse us. As believers, he's trying to keep us under our sin and tell us that we don't have grace and we don't have forgiveness and we're not seen as righteousness in Christ's eyes because of the cross. But it also happens in really small ways too. Are you aware of this? Or do you just think, oh, that idea just came into my head? Sometimes these ideas, these distortions that we are so common and have been with us for so long that we actually think they're part of who we are. And they're not. From the beginning, Satan has been trying to distort and accuse you of things. We find a picture of this in Job chapter 1. Satan is asking God to, to, uh, to, to uh, lie to Job. Um, in this he attacks our hearts. This is a heart thing. He tempts us to imagine things about ourselves and, and others that are not true. Sometimes it's lies that we believe about ourselves, but oftentimes it's lies that we believe about have you ever had this experience where you start to struggle? You have like this bitterness that starts to kind of rise up in you and a perspective about another person. It's like, where did that come from? There is a real adversary who wants to divide us and hold our sin against one another in, in, in ruthless ways and forget and abandon the grace of the gospel. My friends, wake up! This is real. It is real. Secondly, we find in verse 9, he's labeled as the deceiver of the whole world. This is, this is not emotional heart temptation. This actually tells that things are His tactics is he tempts us to believe that the things about God and about Scripture are not propositionally true. How can you believe that? How can you really believe that? This is a picture of Satan tempting our first parents in the garden, Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say X, Y, Z? This is Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness, just snippets of this. Matthew 4, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you bow down and worship me. This is, this is Satan coming to Jesus, asking to sift Peter in Luke chapter 22. If you Remember, Satan is asked to sift you, Peter. He wants to attack our minds. He wants us to believe that actually true are not true. We have to have such incredible discernment and awareness of his attack and his plotting. Thirdly, first he's a distorter, he's a deceiver, and then thirdly, he's a devourer. We find this in verse 5 and 7 and 12 and 17. His agenda is to kill, steal, and destroy. He attacks our bodies. This is a physical attack and tempts us to believe that God is not good. We find he is here attempting to devour the child in verse 5. When the child is born uh, in verse 7, we find that he takes the war into heaven. Uh, we find in verse 12 that Satan pursues, again, he is relentless. God's love is relentless. We, we, we sang about that earlier, but Satan's intent is relentless as well. We find in verse 17 in all of this, and we're going to find again in a moment as he's thrown down, he makes war with her offspring. The Scripture says the devil prowls around you like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. There is one who seeks to accuse and deceive and devour us. And his craft, my friends, is why the world suffers. I'm not trying to make all kinds of specific connections between why somebody has illness and whether that's a direct attack from the enemy. I'm not, I'm not, that's not conversation. The conversation is there is a real enemy who incited sin in the world that our first parents fell into and why there is suffering in the world, why the creation groans comes back to what's unfolding in this very chapter. But here is the difficulty. We are not just sufferers of sin on behalf of others, we are all complicit in it. We are accomplices. But think if, I, think if we don't talk about this. How, how, how will we make sense of the world and the suffering and the horrors of the world? You cannot but turn on the news and see the horrors of the world. And what worldview, what perspective is going to help us to understand why we suffer? There is a war that waged on, and we are are not only sufferers of it, but we are also partakers in it. Romans 3.22 says, all have fallen short of the glory of God. This is Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if you look at someone lustfully, you've committed adultery. If you are sitting in judgment upon another, it is you who will be judged. If you sit in anger towards your brother, Jesus says you've murdered him. What Jesus is getting at is the effects of sin run so profoundly deep. It's in all of us. It's in the depth of our condition. And maybe some of us are saying here, yes, he's talking about sin. He's talking about all those sinners around me. No, I'm actually talking to you. I'm talking to me. tactics are so dark and tricky that even, even at times, and we see this in recent days, even Christians become, can become utilized as his vessels. And there is no amount of performance or righteousness that you can do to get the responsibility of the effects of sin off of your record or off of my record. And that is just tough news for us in our human condition. The first act and the reason why there is suffering in the world is because there is this cosmic war that was going on between the Satan and the church, Satan and God. And what are we to do with this? And this moves us into this second act. The second thing we find in this passage, this is verses 5 through 12. There is a cosmic victory. The dragon is defeated. Verse 5, we find good news. We find encouraging news. She gives birth to a son who will rule with an iron rod. This is a throwback to Psalm chapter 2, verse 9. This is messianic. This is the promise that has been rustling through the pages of the Old Testament, that there will be one who comes who... And her child, instead of being devoured by Satan, devoured by the dragon in the vision, what happens? He's caught up and he goes straight up to heaven, not just to heaven, but to the throne. This is a really important point of the vision, is that this child that, of course, Satan so wanted to devour is actually ushered up onto the throne. He is the Messiah. This is the king. And then the most amazing thing happens in verse 6 through 9. And the woman fled in the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So she goes away. But then the war comes, not just to the woman and her offspring, but all the way to heaven. This dragon, this enemy pursues... This child all the way into heaven. Verse 7, there was a war that arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fighting back. This is the war. But, verse 8, he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for him in heaven. This is a throwback to the passage in Ezekiel. Satan is thrown down. Verse 9, the great dragon was literally thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Victory happens in heaven. Complete and utter defeat of this real enemy in our lives. That's what happens here in this passage. There is a cosmic victory that is substantial and permanent. This is Jesus in Luke chapter 10, verse 8. Do you remember? He, we see visions like popping through the Gospels. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. The defeat had happened. This is Isaiah chapter 14. Speaking to this, how you are from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. He's speaking, Isaiah is prophesying about Satan. How you are cut down to the ground, you who lay the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount assembly. I will ascend above the clouds. I will make myself like the most high, verse 15. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. This is our reading that we did this morning uh, collectively in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. Uh, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and beasts of the field. On the du- to the dust you shall go. I will be healed and you shall the and you shall him. You will defeat him permanently. This child on the throne in heaven defeats permanently the adversary, Of our souls. And in the wake of this, John hears this song break out in heaven. Verse 10 Now salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them night and day before our God. The question that Revelation chapter 12 brings us at this moment is there's this defeat that happens in heaven. Satan is thrown down to the ground. How did this happen? The child was on the throne. There's a war. We hear all that. How did the defeat actually happen? Very interesting in chapter 11, verse 19, the very first verse we read. At the beginning of this portion of the vision, turn with me there. God's temple in heaven was open and the ark of his covenant was seen within the temple. So John gets a vision into the heavenly temple, and he sees the Ark of the Covenant where the mercy seat, through the Holy of Holies, where the mercy seat, where atonement happened for the people's sin. This last Wednesday was Yom Kippur, Kippur, the day that the Jewish community celebrates atonement, and it's a pointing to how Satan was ultimately defeated, Atonement is when someone pays the price for something that you owe. And on the cross, we find verse 11. They have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb. There's a passage that says, before the foundation of the world, Jesus was slain. It's amazing to think about this. That'll be in, actually in um, Revelation 13, 13, 8. The next uh, chapter we'll be reading. The Son of Man was slain before the beginning of the world. The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. How does this work cosmically? Somehow Jesus dies on the cross in 1 AD, and he dies before the creation of the world, and Satan is thrown down in this passage that we get. It's mind blowing. It's not necessarily even something that we're supposed to be able to totally wrap our heads around. That's part of the problem. It's that we get to sit in it and soak in it and live in it and appreciate the truth of this word. That there has been a cosmic victim. And this is to find in the latter part of this chapter, verse 12, chapter, chapter 12, verse 12. Again, this is the song that breaks out. Therefore rejoice, O heaven, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down in great wrath because he knows his time is short. And when the dragon saw he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Down into verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. And this final point is very simple, and it's just this. The war has been won definitively. There is no question. Those who are in Christ are protected. Those who are in Christ are His. There's nothing that can steal us away from Him. Our identification with Him through faith is what saves us and secures us eternally, and the enemy has no authority over that because the blood of the Lamb has been slain and He has been conquered, thrown down. And yet there is real and there will be real attacks that are ongoing. As the enemy is thrown down, the passage says it here so clearly, he's furious, he knows his time is short, and so he is going to come after the offspring of this woman, the church, hard and intensely as he possibly can. First Peter 4.12 says it this way, Beloved, you have, to under, you have to understand the context. Think about this first century. Our brothers and sisters in Christ in the first century being martyred for their faith. It's a little bit different for us. I'm not saying we don't have it hard or there aren't real things we're facing, but you have to understand the context through which John is getting this vision and writing to. I mean, They are literally losing their lives, their loved ones, because of their identification with Christ as Lord. And that's why Peter will write to 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings so that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. that we might be a people, is my is our prayer, who are not asleep at the wheel, but acutely aware and discerning of the devil's scheme. C.S. Lewis in his screw tape letter says it this way, indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, <laughs> that we would be acutely aware of his design. I sat with a friend earlier this week, and he looked at me, and this is what he said to me. He was being just so transparent. I so appreciate it. He said, Joey, I have not been a threat to the devil for years. And I really, I was like, wow. And, and what was he saying? He was saying, I've been asleep. I've been, on, I've been asleep. I put, I, I've shut the blinds. I've been going about my life, my business. How can we stay awake? Let me give us just three clothes here, okay? How can we stay awake? First, pray in the Spirit. Ephesians 6 is the foundation of this. Pray in the Spirit at all times. Put on the armor of God against the schemes of the devil. Secondly, resist the devil. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Ephesians 4, give no opportunity to the devil. Pray in the Spirit, resist the devil, and then this is thirdly, overcome evil with good. Romans 12, 21, be not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Christ's victory on the cross means that we, as his followers, we, as his offspring, as it were, are secure loved, forgiven, strengthened by His Spirit. It does not mean the attacks won't come, but it means His victory is permanent, has all authority. It means the war, the cosmic war has been won, and it means we have strength through the power of the Spirit to endure. And that's my prayer for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for Revelation 12. Thank you for including this vision in Scripture. It helps us to understand why there is suffering in the world and why we suffer. And I pray, God, for my brothers and sisters in this room that we would not be surprised when we suffer. We would not be surprised at the fiery trials we face as though something strange were happening to us, Lord. And that we would cling To the truth that, Lord, there was a war in heaven that was won definitively by you on the cross. And therefore, Lord, the enemy's days are short and we ought to expect real attacks. But that, even in the most brutal attacks, we are protected and secure eternally in you. And so we trust you in that. We come under your covering, under your life, under your love, and we partake of a meal with you your meal, your supper, in Jesus' name.